Hello, and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. On a very lively day at the IFG, it's 2.47 on Thursday afternoon. Things are happening really quickly. News seems to be breaking all the time, but let's take a breath, sort of, and catch up on a 48 hours in British politics, which really can be called unprecedented. The word I normally avoid, but not in this case. Boris Johnson has quit, reluctantly, finally, as Prime Minister after a cascade of resignations triggered by those of Rishi Sunak as Chancellor and Sajid Javid as Health Secretary. So is a tumultuous period in British politics drawing to a close? Well, not quite. He's staying on until a new leader is chosen, but no date has been set, or can be, quite yet. So what does this mean for the government? How will that new leader be chosen? And in these first hours of the not nearly post-Johnson era, what can we say about Johnson's time in office and his legacy? I've got three great colleagues with me, tearing themselves away from TV studios and building graphs and writing about it all. And that's Alex Thomas, Kath Adden and Tim Durrant. Hi, everyone. Hi, Bronwyn. Great to be here. Great to have you. Kath, start us off. Who won? Rules or the individual? Oh, um, you, I mean, somebody, you, I just saw David Allen Green tweeting, this is the flexibility of the constitution happening, working. Um, well, which bit? That he stayed so long or that he went? No, that they forced him out through political pressure um, and that for all the talk about what if he resists the rules, etc. that political gravity in the end won out. Because we um, do have a parliamentary system yeah. and if the party doesn't want its leader, it does have ways of getting it out. Conservative, Labour, yeah. maybe different But it's rules. also, um, so William Ragg, uh, the chair of the Public Administration Select Committee in PMQs this week when they were trying to to force the Prime Minister out, he said, look, you know, we can have all the processes in the ro- world, but in the end you need integrity in British politics. You need, uh, and I mean to take his words further, you need a sense of, of um normality of what is right what is feasible and you're getting to a point where you know over a th- what was it, up to a third of the the government at least a quarter certainly leaving office you know you're starting to get you don't have a functioning government and not just leaving office saying in yeah. writing immediately mm-hmm. on social media with yeah. enormous eloquence why they were not prepared well, and, to serve I mean, under this Prime Minister. I thought the most, I mean, there's so many extraordinary moments, but uh, the Attorney General, <laughs> live on telly, calling for him to go, but not resigning because somebody needs to do the job. Uh, so she argued, I mean, she's right. Um, you know, these are, these are extraordinary times. His own cabinet telling him to go and then him resisting including it. Including the Chancellor he'd appointed. Including the Chancellor he'd appointed, writing a letter, annoying Tim by putting it on Treasury uh, <laughs> headed <laughs> note paper. Rightly. <Yeah. laughs> um, you know, th- it's just been absolutely incredible. Um, and I can't even remember what your question was. <laughs> It was who won. Oh, yeah. And you said, I mean, the the, the famously uncodified constitution and system of party rules and all these things uh, that that won in the end. Alex, what did you make of the tone of his speech, which has not exactly been called Churchillian? No, and it was classic sort of Boris Johnson, wasn't it? I was uh, relieved that there weren't more kind of constitutional shenanigans going on, a sort of suggestion that, you know, there wasn't a suggestion that he might try and sort of not quite set a date for leaving and so on. He seemed to be willing to respect the process that would be determined by the 1922 committee, although, of course, he didn't actually set a date for leaving. But, I mean, implicit in your question, Bronwyn, probably more striking was that sort of, uh, it's not my fault, um, uh, 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 these things, you know, happen, the... the <clears throat> 
once the uh, Westminster herd starts um, uh, galloping away, um, uh, things can get out of control. It wasn't a it wasn't a sort of reflective speech of a prime minister who's taking responsibility, which uh, again classic Johnson in a way, probably won't help him with his backbenches if he's trying to make the case to them to stay for another two or three months. The herd being his his uh, phrase, rather like the blob. Tim, what did you make of that particular word? Yeah, as, as Alex says, it, it sounds to me like, you know, he still hasn't really accepted why he's in this situation. He, I think, doesn't believe he's done anything wrong or at least nothing near, uh, he's done nothing wrong that merits being kicked out. Uh, and he does just see this as a, a sort of, uh, you know, a storm in a teacup kind of thing, which he's he's the the unlucky victim of. I mean, we saw earlier in the week, or, or was it last week? He was saying, you know, people are sick of the media asking him about this, and it's like, well, the party aren't. The party have issues with the way you've led them, and they want change. And he doesn't really seem to accept that. Still, Alex, the role of Simon Macdonald is huge in this, as newspaper editors would say in the margin. Who he and why does he matter? <laughs> so he's he's the former permanent secretary at the Foreign Office, uh, and uh, uh, I think left the Foreign Office in 2020 as part of uh, Dominic Cummings' hard reign. Um, which uh, the Prime Minister might now be regretting because uh, Simon MacDonald wrote a uh, letter that he published on Tuesday morning, which challenged, uh, well, I mean, said, said was wrong, the Prime Minister's account of the uh, Chris Pincher affair, the um, uh, uh, former Deputy Chief Whip who has been accused of uh, groping uh, people while um, uh, while having had too much to drink. Um, so uh, Simon MacDonald uh, effectively just said, this is, you know, this is, this is not what happened. It was known about the Prime Minister uh, was told about these allegations allegations and you know in one letter uh, completely exploded number 10's uh, ever shifting version of what the prime minister actually knew and when which uh, you know pulled the pin out of the grenade that started this whole um this whole uh, uh, explosion to try and not to mix my metaphors no no you've done really well on on that um kath what do we call johnson now continuity prime minister interim prime minister just prime minister um, I think Alex and I debate this. There is no <laughs> formal role for a caretaker prime minister, but he is in a caretaker role. Um, and the cabinet manual is pretty explicit on this, that uh, if you've lost confidence, which if you're being ousted by your party, you have done, um, you need to act as a caretaker. And there are restrictions that are in place for the remainder of his time in office. And what can he do and what can't he do? What, are the, what, what do we, what, what's set down there about about these rules. Yeah, so the first thing to say is we need a prime minister. We need a functioning government and you know, we'll get onto the debate about some people don't want it to be him, but um the you need somebody who can if there's crises who can act, you need um urgent decisions uh to be taken. What the cabinet manual talks about, what all the predecessors have done is make sure that major new decisions, whether it's public appointments or new policy or legislation, anything of a long term character is not um, pursued and that there is discretion there. Now, there may be certain judges. I mean. With the, the get onto that. Well. So there yeah. may be discretion in all of this because it isn't a cut and fast. You can do this, you can't do that. There are certain things like various public appointments that you are expected to be put on hold. But in most cases, it's really about judgment calls, about things that bind your successors, things that would be inherently controversial, um, or you know, things where because of the situation that you're in. You need to make judgments. Now, to some extent, the civil service make a, a, a call on all of this. In the run-up to general elections, in the aftermath of a general election, they know how to what kind of decisions to put on hold. And permanent secretaries would already have had to be doing that because 
with a sudden loss of a load of ministers in various departments, um, they would already have had to start putting the pause on various things. And they will now be taking reviews about what is urgent in the next two months uh, and what actually can be set to one side and what's going to cause controversy. We'll come um, on to those decisions about what's controversial yeah. and so on in, in just a second, as you said. But um, Tim, Kath referred to that debate. Some people don't think Johnson should stay even a few months. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's and, and it seems to still be playing out today, right? So John Major has written to, to Graham Brady saying that, um, that Johnson shouldn't stay in number 10, um, that there should be some sort of interim uh, arrangement. How that actually works, I think, is unclear. As Kath says, you know, we have to have a prime minister. There is no such thing as a formal caretaker prime minister. So if the person who takes over, if a another, a, another takes over, they are the prime minister. Um, do they have a role in the leadership? Are they going to go for leadership? There's all sorts of kind of difficult questions if that if we get into that world the last time two times that we've had changes of conservative prime minister not at an election david cameron resigned and the contest began but all the contestants pulled out apart from theresa may when she resigned we had a full leadership contest and she was caretaker throughout that whole period um just a really quick geeky point and then a more important one um the geeky point is that actually if they put in an alternative person as prime minister they would be full prime minister the caretaker rules wouldn't apply mm. because they would effectively have been put forward by their party even if it's on the expectation that this was interim you know it doesn't apply in the same way as it does now to Boris Johnson the more important point though is to, in order to do this all these people saying Johnson shouldn't stay. They need an alternative. Mm. They can't go to the palace, use mechanisms in parliament, anything like that, if you haven't rallied around a single person that you want to do that role. The, the irony here, <clears throat> which is interesting, is, is that it, you know, it has been the worry for decades, for people like Kath and uh, uh, other, others and uh, civil servants, uh, that the opposite would be the problem, that mm. prime ministers would uh, quit too quickly. And so there would be no prime minister and no obvious alternative. Mm. And therefore, the queen would be put in a difficult position. Um, you know, it is it is symptomatic of just of how sort of unusual these circumstances are, that the reverse is the case. And why is it happening? It's about trust. It's if MPs trusted Boris Johnson to go in reasonable time and to run the country in a modest uh, caretaker style way, as Kath has described, this wouldn't be an issue. It wasn't an issue before with Theresa May, David Cameron or anybody else. Um, uh, it's it's the question of whether the Prime Minister can be relied on to um, to govern in that way. And this is John Major's point, isn't it? This mm-hmm. isn't about, for example, uh, Theresa May being driven to a point of paralysis by the inability to find a way through the uh, the Brexit talks. This is about this is about Johnson's party bringing him down because of his breaches of of standards and ethics and their lack of trust in him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I think we will see. It can only be a judgment for Conservative MPs. You know, there's nothing improper with Johnson staying on as long as he behaves in the right way. I mean, there's a mad situation ensuing because the Labour Party are talking about bringing forward a vote of confidence. And there's a whole load of questions now about how you would word that, what would be the way to... Because the danger is that you trigger a general election instead and then you end up the general election happening whilst there is a Conservative leadership contest. If you can't come up with an alternative, if the government lost a motion of no confidence, but there's no alternative that everyone can agree on, the only option is a general election. So that's a risk. Right, but that does feel fairly hypothetical in that 
ah, the government still has a huge majority yeah. of, um, it's hard to call it the government. Not well, it what does, it is, but, but remember, but, but, it's yeah. 40 Conservative yeah. MPs voting if, with the opposition party makes a, the difference. If there was a parliamentary vote of no confidence, I think that would be, so Johnson just asking the Queen for an election, not legitimate, no. but a parliamentary vote of no confidence, uh, while Johnson was still formerly leader of the Conservative Party and Prime Minister, I would be very surprised if that thought had not crossed Boris Johnson's mind. But has it, I mean, it will have crossed his MPs' mind as well. Mm, yeah. and, and, and Tim, would they, do you think they would want a general election in these circumstances? I mean, not, not having a new leader yet. Th- th- this this threat was sort of bandied around, wasn't it, a couple of weeks ago or around the vote of confidence, the, par- the par- party vote of confidence. Actually, I don't understand why why it would be a benefit. The Conservatives have been trading Labour in the polls for six months now. Boris Johnson is forecast to lose his seat. Dominic Raab is forecast to lose his seat. Jeremy Hunt is, you know, there are a lot of senior Conservatives on all wings of the party who are going to struggle. A lot of the red wall seats from 2019, they're going to struggle. To me, I mean, it doesn't seem to be in anyone's interest. In there's the also just the basics of it. The idea of having a leadership contest at the same time as a general election. I mean, even yeah. if you put the leadership contest on hold, suddenly who's in charge of CCHQ? Who's in charge yeah. of funding? Yeah. Who's in charge of chair. the election Oliver campaign? Oliver Dowden resigned three weeks ago exactly. and still don't have a new party so, chair. So they so, couldn't run a campaign. Yes, that's the problem that Conservative MPs who want Johnson immediately out face, is if they use a vote of confidence, they've got to have an alternative that their party supports. Otherwise... Vote of no confidence in the... Government Sorry, Labour in the government, in, in, a right. parliamentary vote of no confidence yes. in in the in the government uh, triggers a general election unless you can come up with an alternative government, uh, and and if you do that, you can't just have Labour support because otherwise you're splitting the Conservative Party. Yep. So they've got to have the Conservatives decide to do this on so, mass. So let's assume, which may be entirely wrong, that they've thought that through and for the moment set it aside. Let's just look at some of the mechanics of what happens right now. Boris Johnson set about right uh, immediately trying to put together a new cabinet. In fact, he he started that just as this uh, cascade of uh, um, resignations was happening. But he had to do it having known that he was resigning, starting to put together a cabinet. Tim, what do you make of it? Yeah, it's a strange situation. I mean, on Tuesday night when Sunak and Javid went... Uh, though he filled those posts fairly quickly. So we had Zahawi bumped up to Chancellor and Michelle Donnellan promoted to the cabinet uh, as education secretary. Then there was a flurry of sort of more junior mid-ranking resignations yesterday and there was no attempt to fill them. There were sort of briefings that he was going to try, but nothing really happened. And all kinds of calculations that it was actually impossible to fill well, them, exactly. given, I mean, given the number. How, yes. Exactly, how many people have gone. Um, then today we've seen the most of the outstanding cabinet posts filled. So we've got a Northern Ireland secretary, we've got a Wales secretary. This is after his resignation. After he's... People well, saying, exactly. I agree, in fact, might maybe find it rather tempting to come back in for a few months. And, and a levelling up secretary indeed, after he sacked Michael Gove. Yeah, so <laughs> having sacked Michael Gove, he's appointed Greg Clark, who used to do that job under mm. Theresa May. Greg Clark has said on Twitter, he's taken the job because the country needs stability. It needs people who are willing to kind of do the job. So there is a sense of... And, and Robert Buckland, who is now the Wales Secretary, has been on the media today saying, I don't know how long this arrangement is going to last. This Prime Minister doesn't have much leeway to do very much at all. So it seems like the, the sort of big names in the party are doing it as a bit of public service, or at least want to portray that's why they're doing it, to kind of keep the show on the road. And it, it, is, it is illustrative, I think, um, exactly, well, exactly what Tim was saying, but the um, it, it's illustrative, the 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 appointments are almost more interesting than the resignations, um, because uh, Johnson's power totally ebbed away last night when it became clear that he couldn't appoint anybody uh, to these jobs as the resignations were, were flowing. He claimed to be doing a reshuffle. He wasn't doing a reshuffle. He was just accepting resignations and sacking Michael Gove. The interesting thing today is that um, his, his, you know, his sort of the thermometer on his power, I think, has slightly ticked up because mm. these uh, former big beast cabinet ministers are prepared to accept the appointment. 
And to some extent, they begin to bring in voices and and points of view that we haven't seen in Boris Johnson's cabinet for some time. Yes. Uh, and I think this, it's part of Kath's caretaker point. It does suggest that Johnson at the moment, at least either is or wants to signal that he will govern in this slightly more kind of um, caretakery way. The moment he announces, if he does, a huge tax cut or some very radical policy or new appointments um, uh, is the moment to, uh, uh, you know, to, to, to be concerned about how he might govern. But equally, uh, although I've sort of said his powers ticked up a bit, he is completely the prisoner of this cabinet now. There's, there's you know, it, their resignations would um, would would surely finish it. So let's go on to exactly this point about substance that that Kath, you've just been alluding to, and Kath was sketching out for us before what he can do or can't do because you mentioned tax cuts. Actually, isn't that kind of thing completely off the table? You would think so. Yeah, I mean, this is the really tricky thing about these that all of these end up being judgment calls because you are facing a situation where you know the economy, inflation, cost of living; these are all major issues. Uh, we could talk about the international situation. Um, you have to make decisions about that. If you suddenly need to bring in uh, new measures to help because, you know, again, cost of living has spiked in such a way. We saw obviously Rishi Sunak bringing in new measures a few uh, months ago. Then there is an argument that if it's, you know, of crisis level that you've got to act. There is a different question about tax cuts, particularly given where the party are um, and they're facing a, a leadership contest where that kind of issue, where they are on public spending, where they are on on taxes, is going to play a big part of it. And I think the really trickiest thing is not actually the role of the prime minister, it's the role of the chancellor, because he's likely to be standing for the leadership. So for him then to be using the role of chancellor to start signalling what kind of prime minister he wants to be, introducing bold new policy, that's incredibly controversial. It's that's really going. interesting. And you yeah. think Nadim Zahawi, uh, as you said, uh, you said, well, he signaled actually, it. enormously promoted to, to Chancellor, looking as much as you can tell, very credible there for a day. Um, but uh, potentially. Yeah, I mean, he's already signaled that. And, you know, there were obviously the Prime Minister number 10 were putting out things about how oh, this means that we can change course on economic policy. There was supposed to be a big economic policy like today, not sure. It's now moved to next week. There's lots of talk about cuts to business rates, all this kind of stuff. So, yeah, it, it, it's, a, it it's going a, to be a big economic yeah. um, week coming up. Tim, this was one of the points of difference, wasn't it, that Rishi Sunak alluded to, well, not alluded to, I mean, spelled out in black and white in his resignation. Yeah, and there was this stereotype building up, wasn't there, that between, you know, the number 10, number 11 relationship wasn't very healthy between Sunak and Johnson. You know, all chancellors want to spend less than prime ministers do. Johnson, in particular, you know, had a vision of sort of, you know, big, big state investment, um, trying to hold together his electoral coalition, perhaps, and Sunak was more your kind of traditional small state conservative. So, It'll be interesting to see whether or not Zahawi moves closer to the Johnson end of that spectrum. But I, and, and and as Cass said, you know, the Chancellor has got an incredibly difficult job in the coming months. I think though, it is also worth bearing in mind the last time we were in this situation when Theresa May was in her um caretaker period, she signed the UK up to net zero mm-hmm. for twenty fifty, yeah. which is the biggest economic policy decision mm-hmm. that any minister has taken possibly ever. And she did it with a statutory instrument that I don't think was voted on. And she has now set the course of the country, you know, much that bigger than her really, Brexit. That's a really, really good example, because just I just want to stay on this point about uh, about tax, because we are in very economic times. Uh, big tax changes. Uh, the government probably got the last big one through just, just before all this blew up mm. on raising the, or the, the implications implementation of the raising of the national insurance threshold. So essentially a big yeah. tax gift to 
a lot of people. But you've got these smaller ones, constant. Uh, do they uh, cut fuel duty? Uh, do they pass that on? Yeah. Um, what about the energy price? So that's cap? what I mean. Do they mean. get involved in that? And this, this, you know, yeah. is the kind of thing. Not the big set piece statements, but the 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 the, the little decisions. That's that- yeah, exactly. And that's what I mean about this isn't a hard and fast rule. This is about judgments. Um, now, uh, Theresa May's argument about net zero is that that had cross party supports and therefore was worth doing. But it is a very good argument about whether you should do that. And when it comes to the small issues, that's where the judgment call needs to come in about is this for politicking or is this because the economy demands that you do this and it's got cross-party support? Yeah, but frankly, this is where we're at. We're going to see a beauty parade um, among uh, Conservative Party leadership uh, contenders and uh, they are going to be almost competing to set out their vision. I completely agree. I mean, the, the most, for me, the most important thing that Kath said about the sort of caretaker conventions is not binding uh, a future government. Now, you could argue about the net zero one. Could you just uh, uh, introduce another uh, table, another statutory instrument that would that would that would re- reverse it, but not binding a future government? Which is why Kath's point is right about whether judgments come in, um, because is a tax cut binding a future government or or not. But I, the, the one point I really wanted to make was about uh, this is going to put huge strain on collective responsibility mm. in government. It's going to put a lot of strain on the uh, civil service and the secretariats, uh, and uh, they're going to find themselves drawn into a, a, a prime ministerial conservative leadership context context. And it, 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 it's going to be, I would say, near impossible for the civil servants to stop ministers from making announcements, at least about future policy. Really, really interesting, uh, particularly at this point about the civil service. Just looking, though, I, I'm just thinking just um, for the moment with the, the legislation, uh, the government had this huge Queen's speech, mm. great package, armload of stuff, which we criticise as being too sprawling. How much of that now dies away. There's some very controversial stuff there. Yeah, most of it, I would expect. Um, I mean, there will be some things that, whether it's responding to crises or bills that are already in train that are relatively non-controversial or that the uh, new cabinet uh, feels are, are important. I mean, you've some got of the in there, you've digital, got human rights, you've I, got I Channel suspect 4, you've... Channel 4 human rights, that sort of thing, probably gone. Maybe the online safety legislation might get through and then you you'll get into a sort of I mean, it won't be a formal wash up because it won't be an election but a sort of you know what gets through while johnson uh, is still in office or not but it, again there could be quite a long tail of this uh, of, of this stuff because uh, we won't see uh, unless there is an election changes to the parliamentary timetable this will be an, a you know change in the executive rather than in parliament what about the northern ireland protocol and the very controversial legislation and the huge powers that it uh appears to give or wants to give to ministers and big uproar on that already in Parliament. What happens to that? Yeah, I mean, Bronwyn, I think um, you made the point very well in a comment piece that you put out today that the key thing is that the EU won't bother negotiating with Boris Johnson you know, they will be now looking to, to who else is coming in. Um, I think Nikki da Costa, who used to do um, parliamentary relations, handling of parliament in number 10, you know, she said it's got to pause. Um, it, it's just too controversial. It's too tricky. It's too difficult. Um, and it is exactly the kind of thing that should be put on ice uh, for the time being. Tim, just take us quickly through what we're going to become very familiar with, the rules, (laughs) the timing for selecting a new Conservative leader. So on the timing, uh, Johnson said when he made his statement that we will find out the timing next week. The 1922 committee have got their own elections next week, so they'll have a new executive and they will set the the process. But broadly, what we expect to happen um, is... MPs will have to declare if they want to run. They'll have to have a certain amount of support from within the parliamentary party. Then when that field is kind of established, there'll be rounds of voting to knock out the lowest um, 
the, the, those who get the lowest scores until there are two left. And then those two will go to the party membership. There have been some calls that the party should rearrange the rules and skip the membership stage, so A, to be quicker, and B, I think perhaps to get a more kind of consensus, more consensus around around a winner um, because the, you know, the membership tends to sort of pull people in um, in certain extreme directions perhaps. Uh, but that's what happened last time with Theresa May. I think she stood down around May and it took through to July. So we're looking at two months around. I yeah, say. I mean, the, the key thing for them at the moment is they've got to get the parliamentary side of it done before the 21st of July. And so they've also been talking about uh, creating a higher threshold of nominations yeah. to be able to become a candidate and then a more brutal process of, of knocking people out. So we wait to see next week what those rules will be. And you, any, any names you want to bring in now? Well, I mean, we've already because heard it's Suella. Not, it's not obvious, is oh, it? Yeah. Nope. Liz Truss's position is quite interesting, yeah. I think, because she's remained in office. She was on a flight while a lot of this drama was happening. Um, uh, and she has been the most loyal of the big beasts to Johnson. And so I think there's a you know continuity Johnson, but without the scandals versus fresh new one nation conservative or, you know, Brexity one nation conservative approach, um, uh, or some other, uh, uh, some other position. I mean, I think the only signs we have from actual leadership contenders so far as well, Braverman talking about, um, post Brexit benefits, deregulation, war on woke, that kind of thing. So we'll get a better sense of the, the factions, but I think this trust is in this sort of interesting position. And there was a piece today in the Times talking about Nadim Sahawi having been prepared for the Swayze. And I also thought that uh, Sajid Javid's speech a couple of days ago, um, God, is it only a couple of days? Was it <laughs> yesterday? It was, good, it was a good speech. I, I, I must say, um, this country does well by leaving speeches. And yeah, but that did The feel. eloquence which people have brought it's to bear It's Michael Goves I'm looking forward to. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes, uh, well, be a memoir. Well, Michael Goves said he's not standing. He? Matt Hancock said he's not no, standing. No, but he's leaving speech. No, no, he's yeah. leaving yeah. speech. Yeah. Um, but Javid's one did feel like the opening gambit of a, a potential yeah. leadership campaign. There was all those classic kind of where I'm from, why I'm a conservative kind of, you know, stuff to it. We've been mentioning Theresa May a bit. She's not standing. <laughs> um, in an incredible piece of timing, she was giving a speech at the IFG at the very moment that Johnson was quitting. Compliments all round for that um, timing. And it was a speech called Restoring Faith in Politics in honour of James Brokenshire, uh, the former Northern Ireland minister in her her government, um, who died sadly of, of cancer. Here's what she had to say. What would you want to see from the next leader of the Conservative Party? I think, it, it, well, it goes back slightly to one of my earlier answers. I would want to see somebody who wants to concentrate on healing division, mm. who wants to unite the, unite the country and unite the party. I think this is so important going forward. I, um, I am concerned when I look at some other countries and um, you know, the polarisation of politics in the United States, for example. I think that we need to ensure that we avoid going down that very polarised route of, of politics and society. Uh, and so that somebody who can heal division and, and encourage unity, I think, is important. All three of you, you've looked a lot at this question of ethics and standards in politics and government. And I just want to bring us back to the, the top point in this. Is the, the, the collapse in faith in government that you hear so, so much about, is that because of Johnson? Is it wider than that? What does the next prime minister have to do to begin to restore it, Tim? I think it's, it's definitely wider than Johnson. Johnson is is obviously... 
you know, he has played, I think it's fair to say, fast and loose with, with the rules and he's pushed against them, but he's not the reason why people don't have much trust in government. I actually think Theresa May has to take a large share of the, the people's falling trust in government because she promised things that she couldn't deliver. And uh, she didn't try and engage with the details. She didn't try and explain to people that Brexit was going to be complicated. So the the disappointment with government uh, stems at least from 2016. But, you know, this is a decades-long thing, right? The expenses scandal, um, the movement, the sort of demographic change in the country. People don't expect anything from their politicians. And that's that leads to a kind of you know, well, they're all at it. They're all the same. Everyone's in the same boat. They're all on the make. And there is just this kind of general disappointment with with politics, which Liz Truss or Nadine Zahawi won't fix yeah. when they become it, prime minister. It does It does go back a long, long way. You could absolutely add uh, Tony Blair of the Iraq yeah. war. You could add Gord Brown for playing fast and loose with numbers and, exactly. uh, and figures. Uh, you could add the financial crisis and all kinds of things. Kath, what did you make of what she said? Um. I kind of agree. Uh, I mean, it's hard not to when somebody is, is is talking about all of these these issues. I agree with Tim. You know, these have been going back a lot further, but I just think that Boris Johnson has exacerbated so many of them, and particularly um, this question of, you know, do the rules even matter anymore? Mm. What do you do about all of that? I think the one thing that's beneficial out of all of this is you have had a reassertion and Theresa May's speech kind of, you know, epitomised that, but it, it, we've seen it throughout all of these resignation letters as well of the fact that integrity needs to matter mm. at the heart of this. There's only so much that you can do with rules and process and so forth. And in the end, politicians have to behave with integrity. And if you haven't got that, then no amount of rules are going to save you. And I agree with that. I agree with to sort of Tim's identification of the <clears throat> longer term uh, behaviour and decisions that ministers are made. Completely agree with what Kath just said. I would just also say there are obviously deeper underlying trends going on, both internationally and with new media and new technology that are creating the conditions for um, that sort of sense of integrity being you know, even more important and the opportunities for politicians to exploit those kind of for good and ill. The one thing I would say about, and I do think Johnson was a an unusually, um, uh, you know, a politician who was unusually prepared to bend and indeed break the rules. I think it is quite important that it looks like that approach has not worked, has not led to effective government. Um, and so the incentives on future politicians are, of course, there'll still be lots of blurring, there'll be lots of fuzz, but the incentives on future politicians are um, not to bend and break those rules and to behave differently from how Boris Johnson has behaved. Just on that point of incentives, Kath, I wanted to pick, um, pick up one point that she made in the middle. Mm. She spent quite a bit of time on um, secondary legislation, that, uh, um, on the way Johnson's government was not coming to the Commons to the Lords uh, get it to debate its bills. It was getting it through by all kinds of ways that don't need parliamentary scrutiny. And the volume of trying to do that was shooting up. And she devoted quite a bit of time to saying just how bad this was for parliamentary democracy. Do you have any thoughts? Something you've written a great deal about at this kind of constitutional aspect about what can be done, just picking up Alex's word of incentive to, to give future governments an incentive not to behave like that. Yeah, this, this is the trickiest thing because, I mean, her government was also very guilty of overuse of, of delegated legislation. Um, but there's two different aspects to that. One is the way in which we deal with, with legislation 
uh, the, the complexities of bringing through primary legislation, it is also the most important part of democratic scrutiny. Um, so don't just go for the easy option. But the other side of it is just the cynicism towards parliament that even the executive, whether it's ministers or civil servants, display. Um, and, you know, we have been reminded again that parliament is where you live and die as a politician. And if you, you know, do not show it adequate respect, that will end your career and your government. So, um, we need an improvement in, in this relationship. But I, I, you know, despite everything that we've all just said, you don't see the signs of it at the moment unless, you know, they can start putting some, some meat to, to all of these promises for change for the future. Okay, with that, we're just going to take a little turn around the block on a slightly different subject, but not very different, because it's um, it really goes to the heart of all this, and it's one of our core uh, subjects at the IFG, and that is uh, reform of government, reform of the civil service. And we had a big conference on that this week against the backdrop of all this news, and that just added that extra charge to these questions. Alex, you... Um, you were leading this. You've led a lot of our work on this. Just give us, in a in a nutshell, what the main arguments were. Yes, it was uh, it was very interesting. As sort of uh, one thing was going on in Westminster, as having these conversations about longer term uh, reform were. Uh, it was a good moment uh, for it in many respects. Um, uh, there were two broad things. We've talked about some of them before. One um, was uh, uh, some of our work and reflections on uh, the underpinning uh, nature of the civil service <clears throat> and how it's held accountable. I published a paper a couple of months ago about suggesting that there should be a new statute for the civil service that set out uh, responsibilities on civil servants for maintaining the capability of the state and also giving the head of the civil service more authority to actually uh, run the organisation, uh, particularly when setting uh, what are called you know, functional standards around human resources and finance and uh, and and so on. Uh, and then in the afternoon. We talked about better policymaking, again, a consistent uh, Institute for Government theme, exploring some of the um, problems around uh, joining up uh, policymaking, the expertise and uh, excessive turnover in the civil service, um, uh, and uh, the quality of policy advice that goes to uh, ministers and uh, suggesting uh, some ways to, uh, to to reform that. Uh, I mean, the, the sort of drawing both of those together, I thought it was um, uh, you know a, a, an interesting day, and I was I was struck by how. Uh, and perhaps it was the day it was happening and everything's been going on by Boris Johnson, but quite a lot of the contributors in the discussion was about how we can, you know, set things up, organise systems, not to create the perfect world or to, um, uh, you know, uh, mitigate politics or anything else, you know, that, that, that must happen, but just to sort of get a slightly better starting point for some of these discussions, whether it's about policy or about the ethics and integrity of government um, or about um, uh, how people are held accountable when, when things go wrong. And we paid quite a few compliments to Michael Gove as one of the ministers who's cared a lot about this. Uh, he was still in post as levelling up um, secretary at that point, uh, uh, no longer. Um, what next for him and this reform agenda? Well, I'm. Uh, it will be very interesting to see what a future prime minister, uh, uh, you know, how much they uh, care about uh, this. I think um, we'll we'll see with Michael Gove. I suspect he has a very interesting future, uh, whether it's uh, in, in politics or uh, or other professions. Um, I think uh, there has been a quite sort of short term. <clears throat> 
and explosive uh, series of interventions by Jacob Rees-Mogg um, uh, on uh, government reform, 91,000 cuts to civil service headcount and, and, and so on. My assumption is he uh, won't be in that job under a future administration, but who knows? But I would say that this, you know, this agenda, this discussion is not going to go away, either the size of the civil service, the efficiency of government, or some of the other um, slightly more reflected points that we were talking about. Um, and not going to go away. I think I'd make for the... the um the kind of overriding point that there is now a lot of public awareness yeah. and, and talk about you hear it everywhere mm. about how we're being governed yeah. mm. and how stuff doesn't work and yeah. this is really what is driving it up yeah. the agenda not just the passions and of one minister it goes a bit to tim's point about public confidence in politics as a mm. whole uh, and you know this has not been a government that has really prioritized you know calm and sober delivery um uh, and actually perhaps that's what the public want maybe we would say this at the ifg <laughs> but it but it does feel like there is a moment for someone who is able to set out a kind of program of reform uh, get get gets it done. I think uh, you know some ministers are on the record of saying they sort of you know Liz Truss wrote a letter saying she doesn't want to you know she actually wants to expand the Foreign Office rather mm. than cut it. So some of these might play out in in interesting ways. But that basic question of you know how good uh, uh, how government is working and the extent to which it is. Uh, being able to deliver on the kind of rhetoric and promises that politicians make is, you know, of, of, of profound importance. And and one of the key points that's come out of the last couple of days is in pretty much every resignation letter, they've all said how much they value the civil service, how much they enjoyed working with them, how much they respect the expertise of the civil service. And it's fascinating that that is there, you know, because there's been so much kind of criticism from politicians of the civil service in recent years. And actually ministers are now coming out and kind of rejecting that and saying, no, they, they're doing a good job. It's not perfect, but... It, trying to rebuild that kind of working relationship. Really, uh, no, that was a, r- a really good point. As they both, leave, is the only thing I was going to say. Both, both of you <laughs> formerly of the civil service. <laughs> yeah, we're party say there, disclaimer. <laughs> okay, from, from all the three of you, uh, and, br- and briefly, what next for Boris Johnson? Tim? Uh, I mean, I assume... Do I, I was going to I assume he will do the caretaker role. He'll be here until the end of the summer. And then presumably he goes back to writing Telegraph columns. You know, he, he clearly know. wants more different. money. It will look different. It will look different, won't it? It will look different. But he clearly wants more money, you know, and he's 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 never enjoyed being prime minister, I don't think. So he um, he, he's, yeah, I don't think he'll look back. It? Eric Pickles told us that he didn't mind leaving government. And I don't think Boris Johnson is going to mind. I think he'll be quite happy when he's done. I think whatever he does next, he will want to be earning a large amount of money as quickly as possible. Um, I think he will probably spend whatever of the time he has left in government, quite a bit of it on the world stage. Mm. Uh, I was wondering whether you thought he might go to the States. Yeah, I think. And I mean, obviously to Ukraine again, you know, it was already referenced to to ringing Zelensky again today, straight after the speech. He'll want that to be part of his leaving image. Yeah. And I don't know what's happening in the, you know, next sort of couple of months. I remember with Theresa May and others, you know, they did want to stay on for, I think with Cameron, it was, there was some big G7, G20, something or other that he then missed out on. Mm. um, And that was his most gutting thing. I wonder, I'm struggling just a tiny bit to see him sailing into that kind of role as opposed to the... Oh, no, not into that kind of role. The Piers Morgan sort of trail. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. I mean, in his time remaining as Prime Minister, um, he'll want to be doing that. I think after that, he'll be freewheeling whatever he does. Yeah, I think... I slightly disagree with him. I think he... I'm, I'm sure there are aspects of the job of prime minister that he uh, didn't like, but I think there is something that plays to a you know any politician and any ego, uh, it, it plays to it a bit. On what he'll do afterwards, I think there are 
two things. I think the the first is that he will echo Winston Churchill in you know being firmly intending to um, secure his place in the history books by writing them. Uh, so I think there'll be quite a lot of um, uh, Johnsonian uh, uh, place in history uh, coming out one one way or another. And the other is I think he's. I think he will remain an actor. It's, it's a little bit that point. Like, could he just sort of slip into international community? I think he is, he is a, you know, master communicator in different ways. He is capable of surprising people. He is, he is a huge personality. You know, for the last 20, 30 years, he has been the, the, the person who pops up at the Conservative Party conference creating mayhem. Some, I have no idea what it is, but there will be some sort of, you know, yeah. character, mm. uh, uh, role for, for, for Johnson. That feels I right. In international life is full of these, um, charismatic 50-somethings who once had the top job and now don't. Mm. We'll have to see. <laughs> well, with that, we're going to have to wrap up this historic episode of Inside Briefing. We're not people to leave the kitchen when the heat is rising, but it's also <laughs> actually very hot in our podcast studio, uh, which is being much, much used today. My great thanks to Alex Thomas, Kath Haddon and Tim Durrant. Thank you so much for joining us and thank you all for listening at home. You can find all our podcasts as ever at iTunes, Spotify and all major platforms. And please do leave us a review. Don't forget to visit our website at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. You'll get all our graphs, thanks to Tim and colleagues, <laughs> our analysis, the full text of Theresa May's speech and our conference on the future of government, all there. That's it for now. What an astonishing 48 hours. What an astonishing three years. What an astonishing prime minister, in a way. He got Brexit done. Eventually, he got exit done, to paraphrase the mirror. Boris Johnson's time as prime minister is nearly up, but there could be a few twists and turns still to come. Keep listening. 